In this week's show, our guest is Diana Muñiz. Uh, we've been friends for a while, and we're fellow artists. And uh, when she was going through Chaplin School, it was interesting that I was um, mm-hmm. – I can't remember if I was – she had just uh, done a couple of, of units, and I was just starting. And then we've been comparing notes throughout the years. And mm-hmm. originally, we were going to talk about Christian heathenism, and I guess we can weave it into the, the conversation – uh, we don't want to be too too controversial, but we we started talking about some very interesting things about what why is chaplaincy what it is right now and how can we make it better. And for those who are not familiar with uh, pastoral services, spiritual care, or what they call uh, clinical pastoral education, is um, is a program to provide spiritual support to patients in hospitals and. We have to kind of go through the history. We In a previous show, we talked a little bit about it with my friend who was in the process of studying to be a military chaplain, but he decided to uh, focus on a different career path. But what we were talking about is how they, there's this uh, almost um, like boot camp that you go through to become a chaplain. And, yeah. you know, you can see it in different ways, but um, it's supposed to help you uh, – handle all kinds of crisis and difficult conversations and, and challenges. But talking to Diana, who, um, you know, my wife um, organizes uh, educational programs for a grief center. And she told me that Diana was part of one where they discussed the way that the people uh, remember their loved ones, especially in the Latino community. Um, I, I remember being asked, um, oh, well, Latinos, uh, you guys are all about the Day of the Dead and stuff. Like when someone mm-hmm. dies, you start dancing and put on a sombrero and, and put on a mask uh, of a skull and this and that. And I'm like, are you crazy? And, and they're like, what do you mean? It's like, I know that's what you see in Disney movies, but oh my God. you don't really talk about death before, during, or after. And then there are some people who take the more, uh, I guess you would call it, um, it, it's more of a indigenous and more earth-based approach where the way you, you honor your loved ones is by uh, creating an altar and giving them uh, an offering. And then there's also this thing kind of like with Halloween where death becomes something that is light. It's not something that it is macabre or morbid where the skulls are kind of become like playful things instead of being afraid of death. And I know with having small children, that's always a challenge. Like how do you talk about death in a respectful way? but also in a non-superstitious or scary way. Uh, so we can go into that as well. But the most important thing is um, that uh, you have a very, um, very interesting background. And I, mm-hmm. I, I wish I could say that we have a lot of female guests and a lot of people from different backgrounds. But uh, we want to honor everyone from all kinds of different uh, walks of life. So if you can tell us a little bit about your background and what made you uh, get involved in the, that type of service? Because I know you've been serving the community for many years, but what was the shift with, from art to spirituality and are they connected and can you do both and survive yeah. in this uh, difficult um, like financial system that we live in economically, you know, the two things that we both love are very hard to, to uh, make a living out of. Yeah. Very hard. So David, uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, and I will not keep, I'll keep it light and non-controversial. <laughs> but um, the question is, is one that I 
have asked myself what made me come into chaplaincy and you and I met through Mecca, uh, multicultural education and counseling through the arts. And Mecca had, had me doing uh, Day of the Dead altar exhibits. And what started happening is I went into it like, oh, I'm a cultural curator. I'm going to be organizing an exhibit. I'm a, my role here is to uh, organize. And it little, what hit me was incredible. People were bringing items and they were placed, it was a ritual. It, they weren't putting art, they weren't fixing, they weren't decorating, they were creating sacred space. And I noticed when they were putting their altar together, that when they were arranging the things on the altar, there was grief. They were moving grief through beauty. And I said, wow, there's a lot going on here. And that's when I began to see that, wait a minute, the, the, this Day of the Dead is not just a cultural event, this is a sacred feast and I have come to later, I'm titling a talk that I do through town that is called Dia de los Muertos, a healing feast for the soul. Because what I really realize is that uh, this is a tradition that if utilized properly can bring healing. It's not just uh, telling a story. It's not just cultural. If, if you use the 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 offerings the altars if you use the music if you come into it with your heart you will experience the ancestors you will experience that communion uh connecting to them and i'm not you know trying to be spooky saying that we're you know conjuring spirits but what i'm trying to say is all the symbolic all the symbols all the items they create a presence. And so what I started noticing when I was doing these uh, events was that we're really doing a sacred community healing ritual. So it shifted for me from the fiesta, the party, and just putting altars together because that's how I saw it. It was a very hollow, the, the kind of way that people can do Christmas, you know, a whole bunch of decorations, but no meaning. Well, that's how I think people do. We're doing kind of Day of the Dead. That's how I saw it. And little did I know when I started seeing the community bringing the items and placing them and moving grief, you know, I'm decorating. And, and when they're arranging, it's like they're arranging things inside. And people were singing with the mariachis, the songs of joy and sorrow. Uh, the last year I curated, we remember the Harvey victims and we did projections. Uh, on the, on the stage and we united it uh, with a dancing performance. And then there was just a silence and we flashed all the names of the Harvey victims and people were just crying. We, we, we made a community healing ritual. So the Dia de los Muertos for me, it has to be treated with that sacredness. So that's when my journey began because I felt like I was doing a ministry. I was like, wait, I'm not just organizing an exhibit here. I'm holding space. And you know that, that term, holding space. I'm holding space for the community to come and grieve. And it, it, uh, I didn't have the language, holding space back then. But I said, life is more sacred than this. And I want to hold space. I want to I know how to lead the community into grieving, into ritual. And so that's what caused my shift uh, to chaplaincy. 
I'm still a big ritualistic uh, healer, practitioner. I think that's one of my titles that I like to think of myself, not just chaplain. I want to be a ritual healing practitioner, a community healing person, you know, that the community can say, oh, who can do a grief ritual? Okay, Diana can can, uh, gather the community to grieve and to give us ritual space. So I'm, I'm working on becoming that. That's how I came into uh, chaplaincy, because I wanted to hold space for community with beauty. And that's the thing. I didn't come into it from a strict seminary kind of background and, and, and pastoral. I came from a community arts uh, to, to this work. And so uh, I landed in chaplaincy uh, kind of by accident, you know, not, not necessarily, I think it was looking for me um, and I found it, you know, I met it. <laughs> That's how I came to it. It's interesting that, you know, if you, if you ever do community outreach for something to be truly grassroots, you have to be part of that community. Um, yeah. In the medical field, they found that uh, they created a field called uh, Promotores de Salud, or um, they're called um, Community Health Workers. And mm-hmm. the idea is that if you train someone within the community to help people deal with their medical problems, that they'll listen more, that they'll feel that you have yeah. a vested interest in their well-being because you're not an outsider that is coming in to do, kind of like they have those uh, AmeriCorps things where they send uh kids from other places to go teach in the inner city um, is there's always a clash of cultures when that happens. But if you are someone who is in the midst of it and then you grow uh, and develop those skills to help your fellow uh, sojourners, then there's, there's this ongoing uh, growth that happens versus, and we were talking about how when someone gets sick and they end up in the hospital, it's uh, like a foreign world because you're entering an institution it has people that maybe you never even interacted with. And now you're going through a crisis. You're dealing with um, very challenging things. And to um, how do you transition and how do you connect people without, um, you know, we've, we've, been, we've done a couple of, of, of difficult subjects on the show where they say, well, how do you stop um, police brutality? Or how do you stop... Uh, mistreatment of immigrants or something like that and and all that people can come up with is like well you make a, a presentation and you show it to people and it's like a presentation is not gonna win the hearts and minds of, of the of the providers or of the first responders um, then it becomes like a CEU like you just get the extra points for watching that but you haven't had the transformation within yourself to truly understand and walk with the people you're serving but when you're someone who has been in the struggle, then you're able to, to provide the, and it's not to be elitist on the other side where you have, you have to be poor and you have to be a minority to be able to connect with other people. But it would be interesting if we had more uh, representation. So then there would be a more holistic approach to people's care. Um, is that has been your experience working in, I know in, in Houston, we have hospitals from different almost like classes, you have the, the poor people's hospital, and then you have the uh, people with, with insurance and with, My, with nice yeah. uh, treatment. I worked for a mm-hmm. hospital uh, where they had, like the poor people were the ones that went in for 
uh, major issues like in the ER and stuff like that. And then they had a, a, like a suite where they had the people that went in for plastic surgery. So the hospital was famous for delivering uh, poor people's babies and doing plastic surgery at the same time. Wow. And it's in the heart of the medical center. And it's like a specialized place for, where everybody gets, you either get dumped there by accident or you end up having electric surgery. Um, wow. And they didn't have chaplains. Um, it was, it, it was, it now has been taken over by a big corporation, but um, what is your experience um, working in this like very challenging places where not only are you dealing with the cultural shock, with the institutionalism, with the barriers from uh, different denominations and, and, and groups that they've kind of um, capitalized on the chaplaincy departments uh, and being a, a, a Latino woman, uh, what has that been like? I'm telling you, my residency was tough. I asked a question and I won't name obviously the hospital. I, I will say it was a TMC and when I say it was a center, you can edit it out. Sure. But it was a it was a hospital and medical center and I asked, you know, because my background is so day of the dead and I came from that and I have such a passion for it, I dared to ask I was doing a unit in the children's hospital. And I asked the, one of the managers on the floor, one of the people that were, one of the most important people on the floor that was in charge over the programming. And I asked her, I said, hey, it was like October. So the context was that, you know, Halloween and, you know, it started to get, it was the fall. And I asked a very innocent question. I said, hey, are you guys, um, are you guys going to do any altars? What's that like here? Since that, it was, just three years ago, where now it's a Dia de los Muertos is mainstream. I mean, Coco had been out, you know? So uh, it's not like Dia de los Muertos was like, huh? You know, like they, everybody knew. So little did I know, she said, no, we don't, we don't do that. And I was like, oh, just asking, just kind of feeling things out. Well, I get back to my office and I'm called in. I wasn't, I got in trouble. I got in trouble for asking that. And the feedback was that I shamed her for not having Dia de los Muertos. I, I mean, I was so, uh, I was just completely, how was that a shaming? How was I, it was a professional question. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm in, I don't remain negative, I don't stay in a negative vibe. But I sure hope that we, we, I just didn't see the, there, there isn't a connection. I still, I still don't see in the chaplaincy field that there is a really embracing of minority, minority culture. I still feel there's a lot of, we're in charge. We're in, we're in charge. It's our programming. It's, it's, it's our, our, we manage it. There hasn't been a conversation in a, uh, there isn't a much of a conversation with, uh, I think we're just a generation that's entering the field. And I still think that we have to shatter and, and converse. I think I did work that I, I kept coming forward. They knew that I would be one to challenge and I didn't back down. I mean, I didn't do it with like a, you know, trying to be controversial, but I was, I had to. 
I, I said, how, why would you feel that I was shaming you? And I pretty much said, that's your projection. I simply, as a, as a professional woman, I asked you as a professional woman, because I'm reading the context. Most of these patients on this floor are Latinos. My question arose from curiosity and from just naturally thinking these people will benefit from having this presence of this. This is something that will be familiar to them. Like you said just a little while ago, that hospitals are kind of strange territories. If you were to put those places that, that evoke the Mexican uh, traditions, you, it would be inviting to them. And so that was where my question was coming from, and I got in trouble. So uh, that experience just really, really let me know um, as a field, we have to move forward. We, and I don't want, I know I understand the whole thing about not being controversial, but we, we don't have, it's a choiceless choice for me, David. It's a choiceless choice. We're going to have to be a little uh, controversial because, because the majority of people are, are, they have influence and they have power and, we, and they have to kind of calm a little bit down and we have to, you see what I'm saying? They're here in the programming. And so we, they're like, hey, step up, but they got to step down too. And that stepping down, they don't want to do it. They're like, y'all come up. But when we come down, they don't like it. But if we ask them to step down, they don't like it either. You see, you see what I'm saying? Um, that was my experience. But uh, I think I come forward and I make these things known and uh, yeah, people can see it, but I don't feel that they're comfortable still. We're still not, and I don't think it's just chaplaincy. I would say this is, this is global. This is uh, uh, as we step into becoming professionals and, and being Latinos, we're going to step on toes because our representation is, is and, and as you said, as a woman, it's even lower because a lot of Latino women are, are, you know, they have kids and so they don't, they don't go into the field. And so, so we're an even lower number. And so we, we you know, my representation is way down here. And so, you know, we, we have to keep saying, wait, wait a minute. I, I, I don't regret that I asked that question. I don't look at it like, wow, you know, you really, because it, it, it needed to be asked, you know, some questions need to be asked. And it doesn't make people comfortable, but that's that's on them. It was a good question. And now I hear that they're thinking more of programming. Since I've left, uh, I've heard they're thinking more of programming, including uh, awareness of Dia de los Muertos. Let so, me, yeah. Let me tell you a little story. So, uh, growing up in, I grew up in two parts of Mexico that are very Americanized. And okay. when we would see Day of the Dead stuff, it was like from another planet for us. Because... There's, there's a spectrum of people from, from Latin, Latin America, America from all different uh, backgrounds, different perspectives. So we were very Americanized, and it was Halloween. It wasn't day of the day. So then you come over here, and you have people from different parts of Mexico who do celebrate it. And, and it was, it was kind of like um, – it's a weird um, like example, but like uh, Cinco de Mayo. Cinco de Mayo in Mexico – is not a thing. It's, it's like a small holiday of the Battle of Puebla. But here is a big thing because somehow it got um, made part of, of the Mexican-American experience. So Day of the Dead has become part of the Mexican-American experience. And for me, it was, it was like foreign a little bit. 
but it became part of me when I moved to Tennessee mm -hmm. and I was the only like native Mexican in the whole county. Wow. <laughs> so when someone told me, we have a, an elderly lady who lived in Mexico or who went to Mexico and at our cemetery, we had the own cemetery at the, the place where I lived. She would do a celebration for Day of the Dead. I was like, mm -hmm. okay, cool. But like I've had, the only Day of the Dead events that I've been to were at Mecca. And Mecca is a multicultural uh, education and counseling through the arts. Uh, and for them, it's, it's a big uh, event. So um, as the only Mexican, I was like, it's not my holiday in the sense of like, I didn't grow up with it. it it's not part of my uh, experience, but that's what people remember or contextualize. So instead of, of throwing a Cinco de Mayo party where all the people can think about is margaritas and sombreros, let's throw a Day of the Dead party where we teach them how to make um, mm -hmm. dead bread and where we talk about uh, honoring your ancestors and, you know, different people from whatever religious perspective they have, um, they're comfortable to honor their ancestors only to a certain point as compared to other ways. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm like, let's see it as making a memorial and, and bringing things that matter to that person and, and right. telling stories about your loved one, kind of like the grief process that you're talking about bringing healing. And then it became a family, um, not, mm -hmm. maybe not a ritual, but a, a family time to re of remembrance. So yeah. you can appropriate a, a holiday that maybe wasn't yours and your experience, but it's, it is a lot of people's experience from the Mexican American right. community and, and right. have a dialogue and have a relationship to that, to honor the culture. Because what happens is that um, the, the drive for assimilation in America is so great that suddenly you have to choose between Santa Claus and baby Jesus between day of the dead and Halloween <laughs> to, because you are foreign. Like it makes you foreign to celebrate something different, especially on the same day. And I don't think it should be like that. I think it should be an enriching uh, experience. And then you have something to talk about. I just right. don't understand how people get so caught up in their holidays and their things that uh, any other thing becomes a threat. And I think right. that that's, that's what's sad is that instead of uh, being an enriching experience or a way to grow, suddenly it's like everybody needs to shape up and get with the program. And if not, they're, they're causing trouble or they're bringing uh, foreign things. And, and like you said, they're positive foreign things. Like, it's not like they're doing a, a, a satanic ritual. They're doing, no. <laughs> they're doing something that it brings them comfort. So why mm -hmm. can we honor what brings other people comfort? Right. Um, there's no nothing threatening about the, you know, I've had people who were atheists come to like an all, I, I, I was doing sh workshops for, for altars. And, and I mean, I had, I had a lady who was an atheist and she did, she did her little altar and she said, you know, I don't believe the ancestors are coming, but I felt something. And I said, well, you know what? You felt the memory of your loved one and, and, and that presence it came alive because it's you're, it's charged with with all the music and the love and the you know so and then she was like are they here are they supposed to be here are y'all teaching that they're here and I said no it's what you make of it I mean some people I mean I'm a mystic per I consider myself a kind of mystic person you know and so yeah for me they're they're here <laughs> they're every you know they're they're with me but to you being that you're an atheist for you is just the memory is so alive and that's fine you know everybody's going to experience uh 
connecting with the ancestors in their way. I'm not sure where the threat comes from, but I think that's where we need religious, we need religious uh, literacy and to understand that it's, it's, it's safe to, to, to understand the, a practice without feeling that you have to, uh, that you're doing it like a religious thing. Like it's, it's, you know, you can go to a cultural event and enjoy it. If there's freedom in Christ, you know, there's freedom in, in, in Christ. And um, if you know who you are religiously, you know your, your religious address, you know your ID, your DNA, what, what is there to be worried? I think uh, people who are threatened and worried is because they don't know where they stand. Uh, I've never seen it as a, I can go into a, a Jewish temple and feel at home. I can go into a Hindu temple and, and feel okay, you know, because I know my home. You know, and I can sense the divine in, in many traditions. I sense the divine. Um, it may not be where I choose to, to do my own uh, devotion, but I feel the divine with many traditions. So I think we need, um, we need to train chaplains to have an open mind, you know, and uh, they're just, uh, it's seminary that is not, the seminaries want you to be more fixated in the doctrine of the of the, that particular faith. They train you to like be flawless in your doctrinal view. And it kind of, chaplaincy is like unlearning that, unlearn what you, what you learned in, in, um, in seminary. But then there's some seminaries that are very progressive and very open-minded and they're very much in tune with that reality. But other seminaries are kind of like, you need to be accurate. You need to be accurate. You know, there's a, a theological, uh, obsession with being theologically perfect or correct or and, and I really don't think it's that I think empathetic uh, the the empathy element is what's more important you know G Jesus said speaking from a Christian context that uh, we are we, he said you're going to know who my disciples are based on love not based on how good is their theology you know based on love the fruit of what people give you if I'm listening to somebody empathetically then that shows I'm a good disciple, not, you know, that I told them they're going to hell and they need to get saved, you know? <laughs> so speaking the language of empathy is how people see the beauty of the faith. And empathy is about openness, meeting people where they are. If their worldview is Hindu, well, that's where they are, you know? And that's empathetic. That's, uh, that's the empathetic language. And it's pretty okay to to meet people, but people aren't comfortable. P people are very uncomfortable because they feel like they need to impose. I'm gonna tell you how it is. That, that's ego, ego, you know? I mean, if the spirit is moving and the person asks you a question, I think, yeah, go ahead. But, but people feel like they, they, they're failing God somehow, or they're failing their denomination or their tradition if they don't speak out that tradition's language. They feel like they're failing that tradition. Well, I gotta say that. No, no, you don't, <laughs> you know? Uh, you have to walk in with empathy and compassion and that's the call of the chaplain, so, you know, to have that empathetic language. So, so what I've experienced is a spectrum um, in, in the institutions and the big hospitals. You, you, I feel that there's more like free flow or more I guess, modern uh, spiritual perspectives sure. where okay. they want you to be more modern. They don't want you to be as traditional. That was my, my experience. There's, um, there's kind of like an orthodoxy on how you're supposed to do chaplaincy. 
but then there's these kind of like modern perspectives. Mm-hmm. And then in hospice and in other types of chaplaincy is more like a traditionalist perspective. So I was mm-hmm. taken aback when I heard some chaplains in hospice say, well, I need to know my theology because I get asked questions and I have to answer them. And I was like, that's not what a chaplain is supposed to do. So the, this one person was saying that they had to have the right answer yeah. regarding who goes to heaven and how they go to heaven and, and resurrection and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and it was like, your job is not to debate people or to try to prove a particular perspective. Exactly. Your job is to help them find answers for themselves and for That's them right. to, to be at peace with whatever perspective right. they, they come up with. And so what I see is that um, there's a lot of work. And, and again, we want to be positive and we want to help push forward. But there's a, a lot of work to be done either by imposing like a very unorthodox perspective on people who are a little more traditional or um, keeping the traditional perspectives as the only choice within these different groups. And then people who are open-minded or think outside of the box or like you said, forward thinking, um, they, they're kind of shunned because they don't uh, fit their, their mold. You either have to yeah. be super liberal or super traditional. And then if you're somewhere in between or someone who's working things out and more focused on the, on the, the patient and where they're at, that's the ultimate goal. That's the, ultimate the, goal. The, the actual getting to it is, is what the challenge is. And then when we talk about the voices of different peoples, like why is the representation so small? Um, do you think that, um, you know, they never want to talk about, uh, in a sense, almost like um, affirmative action where they would bring more Spanish speaking and, and bilingual um, chaplains, or they would bring more minorities, but don't, isn't it time to kind of start considering at least to be a little more diverse in the in the hiring process and in the people that they are have available? Because um, it's w- way beyond time to. It's way beyond time. I mean, I was uh, looking at a position that said bilingual chap uh, hospice chaplain, and it, it it was interesting to me that it said the word bilingual. So I posted a question in a chaplain forum. And it was like seven out of, and I got a huge response. And it was like seven out of 10 people were dismissing it. Like, but we have interpreters or well, um, you don't really need to be paid extra for being a bilingual chaplain. And I was like, well, that's interesting. I speak two languages. I consider that a, a skill that I could earn a bit. But it was like they were, uh, no, you don't, you don't, you're not special. And I felt that was a bit, I really was like, what's going on with that? And again, it's not trying to be negative. It's just that was the way the room was read. I was like, wow. And there was like a few people saying, why wouldn't you pay somebody extra if she has, if she has these skills? Yeah, you know, she's, she's collapsing the work of two people. She's collapsing the interpreter and the chaplain into one role. Why wouldn't that be extra? She's doing the job of two people, and they all under—they all understand that because they, in a hospital chaplaincy, they understand the interpreter's role, and that's an extra paid role. So I was like, "Yeah, I'm collapsing two roles into one. Why wouldn't that merit extra pay?" And it was interesting to me that there just was no, there was no. Uh, most uh, was like, "Nah, you, I don't. We don't see it," and that. That was telling. That's so. It tells me that we're arriving. 
the need for us is here, but I'm not so sure that people in the field, it's, it's kind of like COVID, like what, who, what, what happened? You know, so all of a sudden, before we were immigrants and they were trying to, uh, they were looking how to help us. Now we're in their ranks. Now we're among the ranks of the professional trying to also help our own. That they don't, that has, that, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, that hasn't quite, oh, wait a minute. She was, she belongs to the group we're trying to help, but she's one of us now. And you see what I'm saying? Like a little bit of a comp competitive now. She's, she's coming into, uh, there was a little bit of that. And um, so how do we, in the field, we have to just be, we have to be vocal and say, hey, uh, we, we have to say as much as it makes people uncomfortable, it's not courting fights, it's not courting discord, but it is saying we do deserve to, to have a little higher wage or we do deserve, or if you'd like, you can speak Spanish, you know? Um, one of the things that I find odd is that I've seen African-American chaplains take the time to want to speak Spanish. Like they will invest in taking lessons to speak Spanish, whereas I don't see the same from my peer, my other peer, peers in, in Anglo groups. They really don't, they don't, they are not as motivated, you know. However, in other occupations, I do see, it, like in other executives and other fields, and, and they do see the need to, to learn Spanish. I haven't seen it as much in chaplaincy. I talked to a police officer once, and he told me that if you're bilingual, you get a, a raise in your pay. And if you have a master's, you get a raise in your pay. And I know wow. that in the in the chaplain world right now, uh, you have to have a particular kind of master's to uh, to join the majority of the big hospitals. So why can they have different tiers? Like say, well, if you're bilingual, you get an extra. And if you have, um, you know, so many credits, you get so much. And then if you have all the credits, you get. So like that, there is more diversity. Uh, do you know much about the controversy between, um, what is it? Um, um, what's it called? It's called um, it's the New York group. Uh, they're competing against ACPE. The, the oh, spiritual health, care. Spiritual well, the, care. Originally, they were called healthcare chaplaincy. What are they okay. called now? Spiritual care. Okay, so. I think they're just called, yeah. I, know, I heard I know. is that the mm -hmm. guy who's in charge now, he wants to make everybody spiritual, uh, a spiritual care provider. So he wants to have social workers, nurses, anybody oh. who's interested in, in spiritual care, be a chaplain. And then the, the traditional uh, group, ACP. ACP, uh -huh. Association of uh, Clinical Pastoral um, Professionals, um, they want only people to have a Master of Divinity or an equivalent. Wow. And what happens is that they feel that it's cheapening the profession because it's almost like a gilded profession that unless you have the right type of education, you're not able to do the work. But in our conversation before the show, we were talking about how much truly counseling do you get in a seminary? How much truly, uh, you were mentioning stuff that I hadn't even heard of, uh, theology of children, um, mm -hmm. birth and death, um, rituals yeah. and, and, and meaning making, um, the ability to support people in time of crisis, um, sexual assault and domestic violence training, Racism, you could have a whole field of, of chaplaincy. If a chaplain, and I've thought about it, uh, if you just became a racial justice educator and then put on top of that chaplain, you could be a chaplain, 
You could be assigned to work and train police departments. You could go train, you see what I mean? You get, you find the racial justice educators get certified and then as a chaplain, but see the police chaplains, they don't have this kind of training. I don't know of a police chaplain that has taken a class with Lee Monwa, who, who is the biggest racial justice educator of the past 20 years. You know, he did the movie, The Color of Fear. I'm talking a big movie uh, documentary director. He's been, you know, he does workshops of racial justice. He's been doing them for 30, over 30 years. You take a workshop with him, you go train police departments. It's like, why aren't chaplains doing this kind of social work? where masters of divinity don't have these focuses. Death, there's a whole thematology study. Um, yeah, master of divinities don't, how, when you're working in a hospice, how does church planning help? Church planning Greek, when you're helping a family die, it won't serve you. So if you take a thanatology course, thanatology, uh, I'm taking a class right now with the Institute for the Study of Birth, Breath, and Death. A Unitarian Universalist yoga teacher who wrote a book called Hold, uh, Holding Space, uh, Loving, Dying, and Letting Go. She's worked as a chaplain. She's worked as a comparative religion scholar. She's training us to become teachers of how to hold space, living, loving, and, and uh, loving, dying, and letting go. But that's her background, comparative religion, Unitarian Universalism. But her institute, because she was, she was you know, coming to these conversations like what we're having, she was like, I need to take these, she worked as a chaplain, she was like, what's all this re religious spaghetti here? Everybody's in a religious, you know, religious, and so she's like, I'm gonna take the mystery of birth, I'm gonna take the mystery of death, which is embedded in all, of the world and I'm going to make a, an institute where we explore these mysteries and we serve people from the study and the exploration of these mysteries accompanied by a whole lot of counseling, a whole lot of psychology, nurses. I mean I'm taking this class with RN, with nurses, with, with uh, all kinds of professionals and we're just diving deep into holding space in these mysteries and that's what i need i'm going to take hebrew and waste more money and have more hours of classes that i don't need i need what she's offering you know the institute for the state of birth and death that's an amazing innovative study approach she's she's getting Especially right now during COVID time, she's slammed. She's getting so much work, you know, and, and, and seminaries, you know, they're trickling, you know, it's kind of, you know, uh, business isn't exactly up. So we need these innovative schools and institutes to, to I mentioned it in one of the chaplain pages because I like to come in and learn about the field. I'm kind of, I consider myself still a newcomer. You've been in the field longer. And so... I come in to learn and I mentioned the Institute and they just thought I put in some kind of weird, <laughs> you know, I posted a post from the Institute of birth, breath and death. And they were like, whoa, you know, is she wicked? <laughs> you know, is she wicked? What's going on? And I'm like, these are the mysteries of your own religion. And you don't, you're uncomfortable with them. I just, 
I find it really interesting, but I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just, um, I just think we're, we're a bit, we're a bit leading, I think. I think we need to be more. And, and there's those innovative chaplains there. There, there are. There's innovative chaplaincy. And um, I'm glad for them. You know, there are. I'm not going to be negative and think everybody's not. Well, let's talk about the history of, of the chaplain movement, because to me, it always seemed kind of like backwards. Instead of, of, of the, the pastoral care providers, the spiritual uh, guides, to be in the forefront of the latest stuff, we're kind of like getting bits and pieces from psychology and counseling. So what I heard was that in the 70s, there was this push for creating a Christian counseling program and that the seminary said, okay, well, we'll create uh, family licensed uh, professionals and pastoral counselors as a field mm -hmm. and we'll be certified within those fields to um, to provide that care in our churches or in our communities. Yeah. And then chaplaincy came out of that where people had all these credits or at least uh, an introduction to counseling. And then it became its own thing within hospitals uh, in a professional thing. But the stuff they, they, that you read in chaplain school, it's like ancient stuff. You're learning about mm -hmm. um, these guys who were interested in spirituality, um, but it was kind of like the they're the the few people in the psychological field who who cared about uh religion and spirituality or archetypes something like that but what about the latest stuff and and you would have presentations about people who who deal with the brain or they they try to measure meditation and 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 other types of of um, trance-like states and the way that it affects your your health and right. things like that but it was all piecemeal what you're talking about, it sounds like this kind of like head on, like we're not like the, the extra guy in the healing process. We're the one who's, who's kind of um, bringing up things that are very uncomfortable, like, like talking about death, talking about the challenges that could happen when someone is, is born. Um, even to me is uh, the biggest issue that you deal with and no one ever wants to talk about this. Is, um, For example, yeah. I did not know. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Uh, theodicy. This idea that bad things happen to good people. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there was one guy who wrote about, about that, and then no one ever addressed it. And in the, if, if you want to come back or if we can do an extra hour, we can talk about this kind of like very simplistic understanding of religion. But what is this, um, the the... Why does holding um, the spiritual care providers in the medical field from being in the forefront and bring and and helping uh, people grow and understand uh, the human experience? Because we're dealing with their emotions, yeah. their their fears. Uh, go ahead. Well, I think you just hit it on the nail with that word "human experience." Is the theological Carl Renner? I think it's a theologian. See, before Carl Renner, who is, uh, I think, a, a Catholic Jesuit voice, he, he put the, okay, before Carl Renner in the 20, 20th century, theology is, is pigeonholed in the Trinity, you know, the cosmos. The theology is very conceptual, heaven, you know, the angels and, and the Christology, you know, the, the, these 
very lofty theological. And Carl Renner in the 50s and 60s said, wait, we need to bring, bring this down to human experience, what you said. So Carl Renner began to, and then what happened is the, uh, the theologian, the, the priests that were studying in Rome happened to be Latin America. They began exporting, extracting his, his students. Gustavo Gutierrez, the liberation theology of the 70s is Carl Renner, the one who seeded the ideas and all these theologians because he was saying, God is with the poor. Let's, let's examine that. God's with, but I think a lot of our seminary, a lot of chaplaincy is still stuck in that lofty tree, Christology. You see what I mean? That, that abstract theology that doesn't connect to human experience, death, birth. These are very messy, negative, the problem of evil, the problem of racism is a problem of part of the, the conversation of evil. So I think, I think that's where the seminary isn't advancing. I think part of the problem that is the seminary approach, that there's still, some of them are still very much in, 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 in that lofty theology. That's what an MDiv, MDiv is, you, you, ecclesiology, Christology, you know, all these big theological, but they're not, not very big on the human experience. Uh, in a human, theology hasn't addressed that. And it did address it, but a lot of people aren't there. That's like the, the Latino theology, because they're at war. They're at war, so they need that theology. They're poor over there in Latin America. They, that's their theology. Without realizing, <laughs> you know, that because America is so rich and prosperous and, and, and uh, leading, and, and God bless America, sure, you know, but it's kind of like, it makes you not progress. You, you, uh, our own success, our own uh, richness and abundance, we don't see this, the theology that we need to have. It's, that's why there's a disconnect between the, the as you said earlier in this part of the conversation, that the people that why is there a disconnect between those of us who have the education and those we serve, the poor? Because there is no connection there. We haven't lived. You know, I'm connected because I lived in Nicaragua. I come from a revolutionary war. So I'm connected to suffering. That's just part of my story. But in the case with many of the, you know, people with, with privilege. But I think our theology has to we have to integrate to the human experience. And if you don't have poverty, everybody has gonna die. <laughs> We're all gonna die. And death is a, we all have to become more human in dying. Everybody has to, to become, to see the spirituality of death. Jesus died. Jesus was absolutely 100% human in, in entering the death experience. But I almost feel like Christianity, like I, I had a, a relative of mine who's, who's a strong Christian, she posted, uh, the other day, we don't nothing. We don't want nothing to do with death. We, we we're never gonna, you know. We're just gonna. It was like we're gonna fly up in heaven with Jesus, and it's like, and on my mind, I'm like, but it's okay to die, and you have to learn how to die beautifully, because that's the will of God for you. And then women that birth, all of a sudden in the, in Christianity, no men. I mean, birth is such a heavy, heavy, spiritually intense experience, and you you know about that. The, the, there's a woman psychologist, she wrote a book about uh, 
the shadow. You've heard of Carl Jung, the, the shadow, shadow work. When a woman is pregnant, the reason the, the postpartum uh, is, is, uh, comes upon a woman is because of, uh, there's the hormonal part, but also there's a lot of spiritual things moving in her psychologically when birth is about to happen and then the, here comes all the hormones natural hormones and then the medical hormones and it's just like you know there's this and i would have no, not known that unless i had seen the work of the psychologist but again it's getting into that shadow work and that dark humanity death i don't know why why christians run away from that because we've been taught that light we're light we're light light and love you know <laughs> And I, I think we need to be comfortable in darkness, be comfortable with the conversation of evil, be comfortable with birth. You know, every, everything is high birth, high death, hide it. And, and it's sad because those are the things that make us fully human. And uh, God was not afraid to be human, but we're, more, we're afraid to be human. <laughs> we run away from being human and God wanted to enter into this communion and humanity, he seemed to really look, want to be part of this. And I think, I just don't see that. I feel like unless I had really come to this, I think I would have been like, I just need to glow like Jesus and be a little light, this little light of mine, I'm gonna, <laughs> you know? And now I'm like, oh, come on, you know? <laughs> Get in touch with the, that humanity, the human experience of pain, touch pain, touch grief, touch death. And I think we as Christians, we've also sold to the prosperity gospel, you know, are you thriving? Are you, <laughs> do you have a car? Do you have a home? You know what I mean? Christianity is also pretty much into that. Here in the U.S., you know, Christianity is really driven to this success model, corporate model, you know, uh, it walks syncopated. The church is like, uh, you know, capitalism, the church also like abundance, you know, prosperity, and uh, we, we, we flee from humanity. And I think that's sad, you know. Um, I certainly have enjoyed learning about death through the Day of the Dead, but through just reading. Uh, I don't know if you, have you ever heard of Stephen Jenkinson? No, okay. Beautiful writer. And he just writes, he wrote a book called Die Weiss, D-I-E Weiss, -E, about dying wisely. Uh, and he said something really interesting. He said, "You're not happiness, not success, not not happiness." Because you know, America, the pursuit of happiness. He said, "Not happiness, not success, but the cradle, the cradle for your love of life is death. Not happiness, not success." And I think there's a lot of truth in that. You know, that we when we face death, not as a morbid thing, but when we face the reality of hey, our time is going to expire, it uh, counterintuitively, it helps us more focused, more present, more joyful, but people are afraid. We haven't, we have not had good teaching into how to lean into these mysteries. You know, what does that mean, the mystery of faith? What, well, mystery, don't go there. No, you're supposed to go to the mystery. You're supposed to, you're supposed to look at it and not with the arrogance of trying to figure it out and but with the you're we're meant to explore it not not again not with the arrogance that we're ever going to get any like a researcher you know a, any researcher knows that he's going to spend 40 years in the lab asking a question he may never 
have answer. But it doesn't mean that the 40, in the 40 years, he hasn't, he hasn't found a whole lot that, that was probable. And I think that's the Christian walk. I mean, we, we go to the mysteries. I'm certainly invited, and I'm definitely in the mysteries. Um, not as a curious uh, person, but because I feel called to them. Because the community suffers from not understanding them. Not understanding death is going to be a big deal because, as you know, when you show up at a hospice and that family cannot, they can't register. Grandma's going to die. They've never done any preparation from it. It's a lot more pain. It's a painful experience. But when a family grows up with the knowledge of, of death, with a healthy knowledge of death, it's, it, it's a better transition. People die beautifully. And I like to say, you know, there's such a, that was a beautiful death. And people are like, you know, what do you mean that was a beautiful death? And yeah, you can die beautifully. You know, the Bible says that you learn more in the funeral than in the party. You know, the Bible does talk a lot about if we're paying attention, it's a good teacher, you know. But um, I, like I said, I think, I think we're out of touch with the humanity because we're all trying to be so godly. I, I, I don't. I mean, I think it's good to be godly, don't get me wrong, but I, I'm also pretty okay being really human. I'm okay with that, you know? How are you doing on, on time? Um, you brought up a lot of important subjects. Do you have another? Uh, I have time. Yeah. So um, from, your, from your experience and, and, you know, I'm very detached from from Mexico. Uh, I came when I was 15, so I don't read up on what's going on over there other than like the major events. Uh, are there theologians or people that you are aware of that are discussing suffering? Because whenever you think about Latin American theologians, it always goes back to liberation theology. Right. And I'm a little uncomfortable with that because now we're talking about revolution and taking up arms and reinterpreting pacifistic yeah. passages in the Bible to make them sound more violent or right, right. at least resistance. And right, right now um, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that when there's protesters that are taking different approaches and, right. and thinking about what, what is the right approach from, from a spiritual perspective. But what about the issue of suffering? Do you feel that that's something that also is not discussed? And do we have something to bring to the table regarding our own experience of suffering and maybe the, the, the spiritual uh, connection with suffering that can help um, our patients. Because um, I, I wonder if, if you haven't gone through too many tragedies in your life or too many challenges, how is it that you're able to truly um, even um, internalize some of the stuff that, the, that we see in, in, in the crisis uh, moments that, that we're out there with the family? I, well, I think... I think empathy, and and even if I haven't, like even if I haven't had a suffering, being really, I'm willing to to feel. You know, the Bible says, "Weep with those who weep." You you know, you may not know their sorrow, but if if you're just sorry for their their suffering, if you have the empathetic muscle, uh, just just be just hurting, uh, hurting for them, for hurting to see them crying you know, hurting to see their suffering. I don't think, I don't think we have to have their experience in order to connect to empathy. I, I don't think, in other words, if I'm, 
you know, I can have just as much empathy uh, for a African-American family suffering with racism, but I don't have to, I don't have to have had a racist experience to feel empathy. And so having the, the, the wisdom of empathy, the, the gift of empathy, um, praying for it, uh, asking to, to just be moved with empathy and human pain. We don't necessarily need to have had that particular experience, but just to feel moved by their sorrow. It's, it's a very moving to me. Uh, you know, I, I, I wasn't feeling very empathetic with the whole COVID-19. I was not empathetic at all. I mean, I've been like, I'm okay. You know why? Because I was like, welcome to my childhood. When COVID-19 started, I had no empathy. I was like, welcome to my childhood. As a matter of fact, in Nicaragua, I was under a bed and, uh, you know, bullets were flying everywhere and I didn't get to, you know, you're lucky you, your kids get to go out. I had to be under a bed or in a closet or my head would get shot at. So when, when all these people started shutting down, I was like, eh, welcome to my childhood. So, so what, you know, and I, be, and then, um, I didn't, I didn't know that wasn't right. I was like, well, I need to be empathetic because I can't relate to this Ah, you know, oh my God, this guy's fault to me. It was like, you know, come on, this is, this isn't really a whole lot. But then I began to really think about it and say, I want to have empathy for the life that they have not been through this. And that wasn't, that was, I began, my heart began to soften, you know, from that spot because I was like, I, then I began to think, my goodness, I was privileged. I was privileged to have had that much suffering in my childhood because uh, it became integrated. Uh, post-trauma integration, if you want to use a word. And from that, I, I felt like I could feel sorrow for people who haven't had this much suffering. I could feel sorrow because then, then I was like, how in the world could I make from, from suffering so much? Then I could, I could find that at place of privilege. I really do. I found myself, man, I'm privileged that I suffer that much because now I can sustain space. I can, I can hold people uh, in, in, in resiliency and, and help. But then, but then George, George Floyd happened, you know, and I, I, that broke my heart. And I was like, you know, a bit removed and, you know, em empathetic. But when George Floyd happened, I, I cried. There was a crack in my heart. And I literally, and I said, I'm not African American. I've never, because I'm so light skinned, I, you know, I also have Latino white girl privilege, you know, you know, because I'm a light-skinned Latina. So I've had some kind of, oh, she's Greek, she's European, she's Italian. So I've had those little privileges, you know. But when George Floyd died, it broke my heart. I just, I had to cry. Like that was the, the catalyst. And I, and, and I haven't suffered racism, but, but just moving into uh, the grief of the world. I have to be connected to the grief of the world. There's grief in nature. There's grief in, in society. And I've have to, if I'm going to serve uh, the people, I have to connect to them. I have to find a way. And I said, oh, my God. And I, I said, what's going on? I, I couldn't. And then finally, my heart just cracked open. And I said, uh, I needed to feel this weep, weeping for George Floyd and, 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 and his horrible, horrible lynching, the public lynching. And it, it just, I broke down. But I think connecting to the sorrow, I said, no, I need to connect to the sorrow. I don't need to observe it. I'm observing it. Like I was observing COVID-19. I was like, all right, look at y'all freaking out. <laughs> and I wasn't. And then I began to, to ask God to show me why was I so observant and not 
compassion, not, not, not entering into that sorrow. And the Holy Spirit said, you're privileged. You, you have had a lot of suffering. You have had harnessed a lot of strength. And, and uh, you need to feel sad that they're sad. And I did. I found it in me. I, I began to find it in me. But, but George Floyd really broke my heart.